Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. So, Manya, who did you talk with this week? So, Sefi, I spoke with Deborah Lauder, the executive director of the Office for the Prevention of Hate Crimes here in New York City, about the rise of hate crimes and how the city is trying to address that. Sefi, who did you speak with? That sounds fascinating. I spoke with two different experts to get a full picture of what we should be thinking about the aftermath of the U.S. assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. First, I spoke with Dr. Patrick Claussen, the director of research at the Washington Institute, followed by Dr. Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, the senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings. And Manya, I think we had the second ever edition of our special Manya on the Street segment, didn't we? It's not just Manya. Our producer, Kukong Do, and I uh, hit the streets once again to talk to folks about what it means to be Jewish, uh, why they're proud to be Jewish, in honor of AJC's Jewish and Proud campaign this week. And we got some really powerful responses. Well, I can't wait to hear that. Let's hit the show. After the U.S. assassinated Iranian General Qasem Soleimani last Thursday night, cable news and social media were inundated with people sharing their thoughts on what the strike would mean for the future of the Middle East and whether it might mean war between the U.S. and Iran. This week, I spoke with two foremost Middle East experts to clear the noise and get the real sense of what this all means. First, here is my interview with Dr. Patrick Clausen, Director of Research at the Washington Institute, a fluent Farsi speaker and eminent Iran expert who helped us understand what is going on right now inside Iran. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, I saw a few people comparing the other night the assassination of Qasem Soleimani to if an enemy had killed the American vice president, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the Armed Forces, and the director of the CIA all rolled into one. I'm not sure if that's exactly accurate, but it certainly gets the point across that Soleimani was a hugely important figure in Iran who did most of his work outside of the country. So maybe you can tell us, who was Qasem Soleimani? Well, he was only responsive to the supreme leader. So he was somebody who operated outside, completely outside of the control of the uh, elected government. And he had had quite a low profile until the battle against ISIS, when um, ISIS, the Islamic State, launched some spectacular attacks right in Tehran against the Majlis, the parliament, and against Khomeini's tomb. Many Iranians became afraid that uh, ISIS was going to roll into their country the same way that it unexpectedly rolled across northern Iraq and over much of Syria. And there was the perception that it was the Revolutionary Guards, in particular Qasem Soleimani, who saved the country from that fate. And that really is what launched him on this path of being so incredibly uh, popular. And then he capitalized on this by showing up on the front lines in the battles against ISIS and the battles against the opponents of the Syrian regime. And he showed up on the front lines both in Iraq and Syria repeatedly and tried to claim credit for Iran uh, for the battle against ISIS, which was 
not very deserved. Of course, the irony is that it was the sectarian policies, the ultra-sectarian policies that ISIS had, that, excuse me, that Soleimani had uh, pushed the Iraqi government to adopt, which uh, was so responsible for young Sunnis turning to ISIS as their only possible savior. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, this is part of the broader kind of complexity of the Middle East that, you know, when we think of maybe America's enemies or, or Western enemies in the Middle East, we often think of, well, I guess nowadays we think of the Sunni extremist ISIS, but kind of historically we would think of Shiite extremists backed by Iran, groups like Hezbollah, for instance, right? Right. And um, Iran has a long history of being prepared to work with the Sunni radicals at the same time that it's fighting them. That's what it did with the Taliban, what it did with al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, that it would simultaneously work with and fight these organizations. And so that history of Iran being both the fireman and the arsonist is what Iran, the same approach that Iran brought to the fight against uh, ISIS. Mm-hmm. What do we know about the specifics of the attack last week that killed Soleimani? Well, we know that it was um, remarkably stupid on the part, or risky, shall we say, on the part of uh, Soleimani and his key Iraqi interlocutor, arguably the most important person in Iraq, effectively able to control all the militias, a man named who had adopted the uh, the pseudonym Mohandes, uh, to be in the same car. Mm. Uh, that made a very attractive target. And so the United States was able to track Soleimani's movements across the Middle East. He had become much less discreet over the years and decided that they would, in fact, attack him there at the Baghdad airport at a spot where there was no possibility of collateral damage. It was a very isolated area. Hmm. Now, in the hours after the attack, a lot of elected officials and foreign policy types you know, landed on roughly the same assessment, I would say. They felt that Soleimani was a bad actor. No one should shed any tears that he is dead. But without any serious strategy for what comes next, they felt that the assassination wouldn't be a helpful step. Do you share that assessment? Oh, I think the fascination clearly had to be accompanied by a whole lot of additional steps. And uh, we will have to see how things unfold. For instance, I would say that it was pretty obvious that after the assassination, Iran would take some reprisals. And the hope would be that uh, the reprisals would be like the ones that we saw the other night in the missiles fired at uh, Iraqi air bases, actions which Iran could claim were bold strikes against the United States, but which in fact inflicted very little damage. And if that's all that Iran does, well, then Mr. Trump's decision to take out Mr. Soleimani looks pretty good. Uh, The question is, what will come next? Will the Iranians uh, start planning something which they will carry out in the months ahead that'll be much more damaging than what we've seen to date? Mm -hmm. Of course, that wasn't the only step, right? The Iranian regime also announced an additional degree of noncompliance with the JCPOA with the 2015 Iran deal, right? But that had nothing to do with Soleimani. I mean, they had been saying for some time that they planned to announce that on January 5th, and sure enough, they did. So since we've been told ever since November 5th that every 60 days Iran would be announcing the next step, it was hardly a surprise that Iran announced measures on January 5th. And when they did, the measures were markedly less severe than what people had thought, in that the expectation ever since the November 5th 
actions of reducing Iran's commitment to the nuclear deal had been announced, that a good chance that on January 5th, Iran would announce it's going to stop cooperating with the enhanced inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Iran did nothing of the sort, uh, and Iran is still cooperating in those enhanced inspections. Uh, so what Iran announced on January 5th was, if anything, less than what people had thought they might do. Maybe you just have a cooler demeanor, but you sound rather less concerned than a lot of people out there on cable news, on Twitter. Would you say that there's less to be concerned about than some people are portraying the situation? Well, I'm a believer in the muddle-through theory of history and that uh, <laughs> dramatic events are not as likely as muddling along. And I would just simply say that uh, you, know, you always have to ask yourself, what's the alternative? Uh, so, for instance, uh, a number of the people who are harshly criticizing the decision to kill Soleimani are people who harshly criticized Trump's decision not to respond militarily after the attack on Saudi oil facilities. And if Soleimani, in fact, was planning terrorist attacks that would have killed dozens or more Americans, and he had carried those out, then these, some of these critics would have been complaining that Mr. Trump had not done anything to forestall the actions. So I would just simply say that uh, often you're in a tough situation. All the options facing you are, are tough and imperfect. Uh, and in this case, Mr. Trump came down on a very different side than what he's come down on over the last six months. I think that recalibrating had some merit to it, although goodness knows that this step was a very bold and potentially dangerous step. Mm -hmm. Let's just turn, before we end, let's just turn quickly to a little bit about how this killing has been received inside of the Islamic Republic of Iran. You mentioned that Suleimani is seen or, or had been seen uh, within Iran as kind of the figure who saved Iran from ISIS or, or from other bad actors in the region. There were reportedly millions of Iranians at his funeral, a gathering so massive that 50 people actually died in a stampede in the middle of the proceedings. So to what degree is that due to him truly being a revered and beloved figure? Or is there some degree to which the turnout was more a sign of fear of the regime and kind of a sense of needing to fall in line? Well, the government certainly encouraged and facilitated people turning out. I wouldn't say that he was beloved and revered. I would say that he was respected and that many people who can't stand the Islamic Republic would tell you that, look, we don't like uh, the Revolutionary Guards at all. But on their hand, they did save us uh, from a worse fate, namely the Daesh. Uh, and furthermore, that last summer when Iran was having uh, record floods, it was the Quds Force, which effectively organized uh, relief in the flood areas after the civilian government had turned out to be utterly incompetent at doing that. And so there were large numbers of people in several of the cities where the funerals were held uh, who felt a personal gratitude to what the Quds Force had done for them and their neighbors. But I don't think that he was so much loved as he was uh, respected. Uh, and the image that the regime constructed for him was not really entirely accurate, to put it mildly. I mean, this is a man who is also a brutal thug at home as well as a terrorist abroad. And um, it really was a clever marketing to take advantage of uh, the role that he played against uh, ISIS, the role he played in flood relief to make him into a popular figure. Last question. Since President Trump reimposed sanctions on Iran, the value of the Iranian rial has plummeted. I think the exchange rate 
today stands somewhere around 42,000 rial to a single U.S. dollar. There have been major protests against the regime in recent months over economic dissatisfaction, yes, but also, uh, interestingly, pushing back on repression of women and, and perhaps other social issues. Does the U.S. killing Soleimani weaken or strengthen the standing of the regime at home? I think that it makes a lot of Iranians scared of where the future is headed, and I don't think that's good for the regime. Uh, so while it's certainly true that Soleimani was a unifying figure in Iran, people kind of got scared at the possibility that there'll be war with the United States. Well, all of this is uh, certainly something that we'll be watching very closely over the coming days and weeks and months. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise. Okay. Thank you, sir. Next, I spoke with Dr. Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings. Dr. Wittis previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs in the Obama administration, and she is a co-host of one of my other favorite podcasts, Rational Security, which focuses on foreign policy and national security issues. Tamara, thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be here. Can you start by telling us a bit about the work of the Quds Force that Qasem Soleimani used to command? Why did they exist and what did they do? Okay, so the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is essentially the foreign military or quasi-military expeditionary operation for the Islamic Republic of Iran. And within that, the Quds Force, um, which has somewhere between 10 and 20,000 fighters, is the um, sort of main liaison to Iran's um, clients and proxies, other military and paramilitary organizations around the region that help Iran influence regional politics and gain, and gain a foothold in neighboring states. So the Quds Force is the primary liaison to Hezbollah in Lebanon. The Quds Force has worked with Hamas and Palestine Islamic Jihad. The Quds Force um, helped train and supply the Iranian-linked militias in Iraq that, after our invasion of Iraq, um, waged a major campaign against the American military on the ground in Iraq and killed a couple hundred Americans there. Um, so when you think about, you know, the the arm of Iran is reaching into other countries in the region and trying to use local uh, militia forces to influence politics, the Quds Force is the pointy end of the spear of that effort. Hmm. That's a fascinating analogy, the tip of the spear. I, You know, you mentioned the work around the region of the Quds Force as, you know, part of the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. So I actually want to focus on three specific places in that region and just kind of, you know, wrap around the Fertile Crescent, as it were. So, you know, some are suggesting and some of the developments after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani seemed to suggest that this could mean the end of the U.S. war in Iraq simply because Iraqis won't want us there anymore. What do you think this means for U.S. involvement in Iraq? I think U.S. engagement in Iraq at the military level has been uh, certainly an issue of controversy within Iraq from the very beginning. 
Um, remember, we we went in of our own accord and overthrew the government and helped set up a new government, um, which has now had several sets of democratic elections in a very divided society. And in that divided society, there are also very divided, polarized opinions about the American role and the American presence. Um, so it's never not been a controversy having American forces in Iraq. When President Obama withdrew American combat troops in 2011, that was because the politics in Iraq would not support uh, a status of forces agreement that would allow American forces to stay with the protections that the American government insisted on for them. Um, but with the rise of ISIS in 2014, uh, a new Iraqi government with a new leadership asked the United States to come and help combat ISIS and help train the Iraqi military so that it could become a more competent counterterrorism force. Um, what's complicated is that during that anti-ISIS fight, American and other coalition forces fighting ISIS with the Iraqis were working uh, alongside pro-Iran militias that were backed by the Quds Force and by Qasem Soleimani. They were also fighting ISIS. We all had in common the idea of defeating this extremist Sunni terrorist group that was trying to take over Iraqi territory. Um, but once that fight began to wind down, the underlying differences over Iraq's independence and sovereignty, its political orientation in the region, all of those reemerged. And so I don't think we can say that the killing of Qasem Soleimani has made a determinative difference in the long-term prospects for keeping American troops in Iraq. It may have just radically accelerated a trend that was building anyway uh, to reduce, if not eliminate, the American military presence there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking of these strange bedfellows of this fight against ISIS, you know, we can kind of keep moving west from Iraq to Syria, where Iran and Russia, increasingly Russia, have been the primary sponsors of Bashar al-Assad's continued rule. Does Soleimani's killing have any implication for the future of this, you know, long dragging out Syrian civil war? I think it has significant implications for Syria and for the Russian presence in Syria and for the threats that the Syrian war poses to the neighborhood, including to Israel. So let me start with the fate of Bashar al-Assad himself. Sure. Um, at a moment when his regime was teetering on the brink of collapse in the face of opposition assaults, it was bolstered by a Russian intervention but also by very strong support from Iran and with Iran's guidance from Lebanese Hezbollah. Um, and Lebanese Hezbollah and Iranian-backed militias, some of whom are not Arabs at all, but came from other parts of the world to help su support this Iranian-backed regime in Syria, they were the ground forces. Uh, and Russia was the strategic advisor and the air force and the air defense for Bashar al-Assad in pushing back against the opposition. Um, now that the, that they have consolidated um, that regime in place, the question is what becomes of the Iranian presence in Syria over the long term? Uh, and Israel, among others, has been extremely concerned um, to see indications 
that the IRGC has been trying to embed permanent military installations um, with personnel and equipment inside Syria, and a number of Israeli airstrikes have been an attempt to destroy or deter that kind of Iranian presence. Um, with the United States now under increased pressure in Iraq, we I think it's important to acknowledge that is our presence in Iraq is what has enabled us to sustain the forces, the small number of American forces that we have sitting at Atanf on the Iraqi-Syria border. Those are the remaining American forces in Syria right now. They are guarding this highway that runs from Baghdad in Iraq to Damascus in Syria. The, the IRGC has been trying to use to bring equipment and personnel into Syria and also to Lebanese Hezbollah. Um, and so if the American presence in Iraq is removed, I think it gets much more difficult to sustain that American presence at Atanf on the Syrian border, and therefore much harder for the United States to do anything to help deter or prevent uh, Iran from embedding itself further in Syria. And just to color this in a little bit more for our listeners, I, I guess Iran's involvement in Syria is due to ideological alignment, and Russia's is due to wanting to keep a port on the Mediterranean Sea? I mean, does it all kind of boil down as simply as that, or is there more to this? Um, I, I think those interests are both quite correct, but I think that there's a lot more to it than that. The alliance between the Islamic Republic of Iran and the Assad regime in Syria dates back more than three decades. Um, it is partly ideological, it's partly sectarian, because the Assad family are... Um, from a breakaway sect of Shia Islam that is considered by many Muslims, especially Sunni Muslims, to be heretical. And so um, there is that affinity with a Shia regime that's more tolerant of these kind of sectarian minorities. Um, but there, there is also an ideological orientation in that the alliance with Iran has helped Syria as a, you know, in a loose sense, leftist Arab nationalist regime um, to maintain some independence from other heavyweights in the Arab world like Saudi Arabia and Egypt and to maintain a sort of independent stance. Um, and so it's had political kind of security uh, interests, not only ideological interests at the heart of that alliance. For the Russians, yes, the port, uh, the Mediterranean port, that warm water port is important. Um, it's also a place where Russia has been able to kind of harry the United States, thumb its nose at the United States and the perception of America, declining American influence in the Middle East. And it's also been a place what, where simply by its presence, and its influence over the Syrian regime, Russia has made itself an address for other governments in the region that care about the fate of Syria to um, show up in Moscow and spend a lot of time talking to Vladimir Putin. So Putin has been able, for example, to convene a, what they call a peace process uh, between Turkey, uh, Iran, and uh, Syria you know, over the fate of, of the Syrian civil war. I don't think that that's a peace process that is actually going to produce an end to conflict. 
Um, but again, it's made Putin an important address uh, and raised his prestige and raised his presence in the region. Okay. Well, you alluded to Israel before. So just before we close, uh, you know, we at AJC are all worried about what this will mean for Israel. Iran itself is a threat, uh, of course. And if the conflict with the U.S. were to continue to escalate, then Iran might well, you know, kind of target Israel as a way of getting to America. Plus the situation with Hezbollah, the Iranian terror proxy that more or less controls Lebanon is dangerous in and of itself, right? Hezbollah has something like 150,000 missiles stockpiled in southern Lebanon ready to fire at Israel. So even if the U.S. and Iran are able to avoid a shooting war, as it seems like they may be able to do, how likely is it now that we see something of a kind of proxy battle between Israel and Hezbollah? Uh, well, number one, I would say Hezbollah is not a mere client of the Islamic Republic. It is an actor in its own right with a degree of autonomy. So I would say it's a partner with the Islamic Republic. Mm -hmm. um, and it's important to keep that in mind. Um, at, that doesn't necessarily push in one direction or the other in terms of how Hezbollah may play the current situation and its threats against Israel. But it is important to keep in mind that Hezbollah is going to make its own decisions. It, it doesn't simply take orders from Tehran. Um, and as an actor with a deep vested interest in Lebanon, Hezbollah has to weigh, uh, knowing that any attack on Israel is going to lead to another Israeli land invasion into Lebanon and pounding of Lebanese infrastructure of the Lebanese civilian population by the Israeli Air Force. That is given the Israelis have been crystal clear that that will be an immediate result of a Hezbollah missile attack on Israel. Um, so I think that that deterrence has its own dynamic, no matter what the Iranians may want Hezbollah to do. But looking at the broader situation, whether or not there is an active, direct military face-off between Iran and the United States, Iran has all of these other capabilities around the region that create leverage. Now, look, the United States has other capabilities around the region as well. Um, but Iran's modus operandi is asymmetric response. They don't have to, you know, go tank to tank. Um, they can respond to something like the targeted killing of Qasem Soleimani with, um, how, you know, encouraging their Yemeni partners, the Houthis, to heat up the civil war in Yemen and torpedo the very delicate peace process now underway with the Saudis and Emiratis and, and Yemen. Um, they could use uh, cells that they have built up in Bahrain to conduct terrorist operations in Bahrain, either against Bahrainis or against American naval forces. We have a major naval base on Bahrain. So, you know, they have a lot of levers they can use in the region and also internationally. Um, let's not forget that the Islamic Republic is the leading state sponsor of international terrorism. And we've seen them take action very far outside the Middle East in Argentina, mm -hmm. you know, bombing both the yep. Israeli embassy and, and the Jewish community center there. So there's, you know, they have a lot of options for response. We have a lot of options um, and a lot of capabilities around the region for response. But I think that they will have to make a choice about how much pressure they want to put 
not only on the United States, but on other regional governments that are allied with the United States and what it is they're trying to get out of applying that pressure. Mm -hmm. Well, Tamara, let me just ask you as the last question here, you know, to kind of put a button on the whole thing. I think this is the $64,000 question. Is the region more dangerous now that Qasem Soleimani is dead or less? You know, a decapitation strike of somebody who had this much charisma and individual capacity as a leader and also someone who had built so many important relationships um, with these Iranian-backed groups around the region Removing that person definitely has at least a short-term impact, reducing the Iranians' capability, reducing the coordination amongst these groups and Tehran. Whether in the longer term it makes the region safer or not depends on not this individual's presence or absence, but on the broader shape of conflict between the U.S. and its partners and Iran and Iran's partners. And I think one of the um, challenges we face today is that in that broader confrontation, the United States government is not yet clear on what it's looking for, what it's seeking. It's putting all this pressure on Iran and it wants Iran to do what exactly? The list of, uh, of conditions laid out by the Trump administration is so long and diverse that it's entirely unrealistic. And so to de-escalate the conflict and to move it into a track where this pressure actually produces a change in Iranian behavior um, and a commitment from Iran to change its behavior through a diplomatic agreement, we have to be clearer about what we want. Well, these are uh, sobering thoughts. I'm, I'm not sure anyone knows more about the region that we just discussed than you. So we appreciate so much that you would uh, take the time to help us better understand uh, what's going on in that part of the world. Thank you so much, Tamara. My pleasure, Sefi. Last October, AJC conducted a landmark survey that found a third of American Jews hide or conceal their Jewish identity. In response to that and anti-Semitic attacks across the city of New York and in New Jersey, AJC decided to sponsor a Jewish and Proud campaign this week, encouraging people to display their Judaism, wear their kippahs, wear stars of David, and do other things that might display their Judaism. Producer Kukong Do and I hit the streets of New York to ask people how they were displaying their Judaism, what made them proud to be Jews, and what it means to be Jewish. Here are some of the responses. So we are here asking people why they're proud to be Jewish and what being Jewish means to them. Okay, so it's going to New York, mm -hmm. freezing in a kosher, like, nice but not that nice restaurant, <laughs> meeting people that you don't know, <laughs> asking you this weird question, and you feel hard. You feel like uh, you're part of a big uh, uh, family. Uh, and it's something amazing how we can connect all around the world, uh, Jewish people, and uh, not always uh, only in kosher places. You can find people um, everywhere, but you feel uh, a connection. You feel uh, one part. And this is what I love um, about traveling and meeting other Jewish people. So I think there are many ways to express one's Jewishness. One of the ways for me, interestingly enough, is really to focus forward, uh, forward to the uh, Shabbat, the Sabbath, the Jewish day of rest. It's an amazing gift from God, and in today's 24-7, forever-on society, 
it's an amazing gift to be able to look forward to, dis- to disconnecting and spending time with family and prayer, Torah and thought. And I look forward to it each and every day. And the moment the Sabbath ends is the moment I look forward to it the next week. It definitely, it's the values. It's something that uh, keeps you grounded, keeps you uh, driven and on a mission in life, uh, and it really gives you purpose. That's uh, first and foremost. Um, and what it means to me and, and how I display that on, on a daily basis, well, I, was, I can speak for, for many, um, being in the workforce and being having an office in, in Manhattan, in the center of the, the world, really, a mashpot of all cultures. And uh, we're able to display that. We wear yarmulke. We're proud of what we do, we're, our heritage, where we come from. And we're very lucky and fortunate to have that ability in America today. The main reason I'm proud to be Jewish, and I'm sure it's in other religions as well, and other parents teach their children as well, but I was taught and I've learned um, that everyone is born to help another. And if someone needs something, then you help them, regardless of their religion or who they are. You're here to help everyone in the world. Well, I think being a, a Jew in this world is trying to reveal God's presence in the world. Every believer, I think, that sees their goal as such, and Jews in that sense are not different. Um, and I think it's a, it's a real uh, interesting point of view at life and at this world, is seeing it as a hidden potential of God being everywhere and every person we meet and every interaction that we have with the world. That's how I see my Judaism. How do you kind of display your Jewish pride? Being civically engaged and volunteering is how, what I associate with being Jewish and caring about making the world a better place. I, I connect the most with Tikkun Olam, so every time I volunteer or engage in my community, I, I feel like that's me enacting my Judaism. Being Jewish is a, a way of life and uh, gives a purpose to living and uh, display it by acting accordingly to be a kind person to everybody. We had a, a AJC survey back in October that said that about thir- a third of Jews conceal or hide their Jewish identity. Is that a concern that you share um, or not so much? It is, yeah. It really uh, it depends where I am. It depends who I'm with. Um, I don't always like admitting that, but like my wife won't like. She doesn't like me wearing a kippa out in public in many places. I'm obviously from the UK, so when we've been in London, she's asked me to wear a baseball cap. Um, and I know friends who feel that way increasingly in this city now. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's a scary thing. Um, for me, I kind of play it by ear and I judge my own comfort. Um, but I also feel it's important to to represent myself as Jewish in certain situations. It's yeah. just something that I'm very aware of and have become much more aware of in this city in the past year for yeah. very negative reasons. Yeah. So do you, so you're, we're indoors so, and you're wearing a kippah now, do you wear it outdoors for people to see? Often, yes, okay. I do, yeah. And again, that's become such a loaded, it feels like a loaded thing to do now um, feels like a scarier thing to do. Being from Jerusalem, I mean, is this shocking to you or not so much when you hear about these attacks? Uh, we live in a crazy environment in Israel and we feel uh, safe, but suddenly our heart is with you and what, what is happening in America, but uh, it's, we don't feel unsafe here because, you know, if we live in Israel, in Jerusalem, um, I, I, I always feel that we are all um, 
איך אומרים, כאילו פוסט-טראומטיק in this uh, way, but it, uh, it's very important to go against it, uh, to speak, to talk, to make a change. Last year, New York City Council paved the way for an Office for the Prevention of Hate Crimes to be created by the month of November. But in the months that followed, crime went down in the city. Hate crimes went up. So Mayor Bill de Blasio, by September, had that office staffed. He tapped Deborah Lauder as the executive director. And Deborah is here to join us to talk about the rise of anti-Semitic attacks in Brooklyn and what the city is doing to address it. Deborah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So you joined the mayor's office earlier this year. What was the catalyst for that? Right. So the good news in New York City is that crime has come down. But when they were looking at various areas, there clearly was an increase in hate crimes. So the city council actually enacted the legislation to open this office a year ago, so January 2019. Mm-hmm. And they wanted the office to be opened in November of 2019. Um, the city continued to see over the spring and summer months uh, a number of hate crimes increasing. And so Mayor de Blasio announced, you know what, we don't have the luxury of waiting for this office to open. Let's get going. Mm-hmm. So I was brought on board and started really right at the beginning of September. So it's only been a little over four months now. Okay. Was that the threshold for needing a position like this, where crime goes down, hate crimes go up? Or what is the threshold? How do you know you need a position like this? Yeah, I mean, people were just seeing this increase in trying to get a handle and saying, you know what, we need to take a long-term approach to this issue. We can't sweep it under the rug. And I saw it as an incredibly good sign that the mayor was taking this seriously. And instead of just condemning incidents as they occurred, saying, you know what, let's look. Let's mm-hmm. see if we can indeed find patterns, what's motivating this increasing trend, and what can we do, not just reactively, but in the long term, be proactive to squelch it. Mm-hmm. So what are some of those measures that you're taking? Right. So, I mean, I've been in this business for a long time, <laughs> fighting hate and discrimination. And the one thing I can assure you is there's not one way to do it. So I've been taking a multi-pronged approach. Um, there's a couple initiatives. One, well, the multi-pronged approach focuses on three areas, and that's working with law enforcement, working in community relations, and third, working in education. And those all have to work together and separately um, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I brought together what we're calling an interagency committee on hate crimes. When I got into city government, I realized there were actually 11 different agencies in New York City who sort of have their fingers on doing something related to hate crimes. So every agency from the Department of Education to the NYPD, Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, the City Commission on Human Rights, the Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs, all these organizations um, have been doing great work, but they've never been brought together in a comprehensive way to look at the issues, discuss what they're doing, maybe come up with some innovative solutions to address it. So mm-hmm. that good work is already underway. They've been convened. They're now working in working groups around specific topics. Um, At the same time that the city council enabled this office to open, they also created a program called the Hate Violence Prevention Initiative. These were a series of grants to community-based organizations who are really 
in their communities doing the good work to educate their constituency on what are hate crimes, how do you report, provide victims assistance. So this office is overseeing all those grants. In fact, we just met this afternoon with all of them to permit them to share what they're doing, share best practices. So, you know, you have the Jewish organizations sitting with the Muslim organizations, sitting with the LGBTQ organizations Mm -hmm. and the immigrant organizations, all discussing sort of holistically what we're doing. So I'm very excited about that initiative. In response to the increase in the religious neighborhoods in Brooklyn, particularly, the mayor announced now about a week ago a new initiative uh, called Neighborhood Safety Coalitions. And so we're in the process of forming those. These will be very diverse uh, representatives and leaders from the three communities in Brooklyn most affected, that would be Williamsburg, uh, the Borough Park area, and Crown Heights, um, of really coming together and having them develop their action plans for how they can stand up for each other and to really be a very public face of saying we will not tolerate any form of hate or hate crimes in our communities. Mm -hmm. So a lot going on. We've also been working with the Department of Education. Um, Last week, uh, Chancellor Carranza sent to all the public schools uh, resource sheets um, about how to bring more attention and discussions into the classroom on respect and discussing what's been going on. He, uh, the first lady and I attended a high school to talk to kids, to get some feedback on what they're seeing and how they can be part of the solution. So there's a lot of things going on, a lot of activities that I'm really excited about that we want to see uh, scaled and set a a real value to community respect. It sounds like a lot of what you're doing is breaking down silos. A lot of good work out there, but nobody really talking to each other or learning from each other. Yeah, there's actually, I mean, I I would say there there have been some really good things going. Um, I think people got a little bit taking things for granted. And Mm -hmm. now it's been, you know, the saying about with crisis comes opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I've just been meeting a lot of incredibly thoughtful individuals and organizations who have done some of this work, but they realize it needs to be done mm-hmm. at a much larger scale, yeah. and um, they're real committed to doing it. So I think some of the work we're doing right now in the crisis mode is going to have a long-term impact, and I'm, I'm particularly excited about that. You talked about the grants dedicated to the Hate Violence Prevention Initiative. How much money has been allocated for that, and is that number going to go up, or has it already gone up to address this yeah, rise in hate that, crime? Um, City Council allocated a million dollars for those grants. Okay. All right. And that number has remained the same since last year? Um, Yeah. So this is the first cycle that it's been done. Okay. Now, Congresswoman Nita Lowy, our CEO, David Harris, called the spate of attacks that's been happening an epidemic. And some authorities are calling these incidents domestic terrorism. Are these terms accurate? Would you agree with them? Or would you add some terms of your own to describe what's going on? Yeah, so I mean, Mayor de Blasio has called it a crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, when you look at the data, there is no doubt something is going on that warrants direct attention, and that's why we're also focused on it right now. Mm-hmm. So, um, listen, I've, I've spent a lot of time with New York Police Department at all the different levels, particularly working closely with the Hate Crime Task Force here. Um, I have full confidence that they are devoting really heightened resources to addressing the issue. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a priority for the city of New York. And I think, 
yeah, my message to the Jewish community is that this is being taken very seriously. It always has been, but in light of the data and the numbers going up, they've all said one hate incident is too many. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that there were last year 234 anti-Semitic incidents, um, and those are just reported ones, that was a 55% of all the reported hate crimes you know, no matter what you call it, it deserves attention and response. Yeah. You, uh, your office, I should say, addresses all kinds of hate, whether it's yes. against Muslims, against the LGBTQ community. What would you say is the common thread, I mean, besides hate, uh, but the common thread of what could work to prevent this? Yeah, so breaking down stereotypes and bias against individuals, getting to know the other, the quote-unquote the other, I think will have uh, long-term consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, there's fear. We're, you know, we're in a stage in our country's history where there's clearly a lot of polarization mm-hmm. and um, people are not feeling secure and it's somehow manifesting. I, you know, I believe the bigotry has always been underlying, um, but somehow that lid has come off the sewer and people are feeling more empowered or whatever to express it. Mm-hmm. And so we are seeing an increase in these incidents. We've got to figure out how to tamp that down and to stop the normalization of hate. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for the good work that you're doing for the city of New York. Thank you so much. Pleasure to speak to you. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Sue Sirks, the environment correspondent for the Times of Israel. Sue, when you are talking with your friends and family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Well, I returned last week from Uganda, where I visited a bunch of projects by an Israeli organization called Innovation Africa. And they use Israeli technology to bring electricity and clean water to African villages. What they do is they install solar panels with three aims. One is to bring electricity to schools so that pupils can study for longer. Another is to power clinics so that babies can be delivered at all hours, and so they can have fridges to store vaccines and medications in. And a third is to draw water up from underground aquifers. There's a lot of underground water in Uganda. Filter it and channel it through taps into the village. Because what you see in Uganda is is women mainly and children uh, walking for miles with yellow plastic jerry cans to fetch water. Over the past 10 years, Innovation Africa has raised funds to complete 279 projects in 10 African countries. And it's improved the lives of 1.7 million people, which is totally amazing. And this year, it wants to nearly double that by doing another 200 projects. And the interesting thing is that it's actually quite cheap to do. It costs $18,000 to do a medical center or a school. What they do is they connect the clinic or the school, and they also connect the homes of the school or medical staff to keep the nurses and teachers in the village and to bring doctors in. And it costs $50,000 to do a water project. That's drilling, construction, solar panels, storage tank, piping, taps, remote monitoring and labor. Really, it's not a lot. That trip provided me with a a lot of food for thought and raised a lot of questions in my mind. Many years ago, I traveled really quite extensively around East Africa, and I saw rural populations mainly living in mud huts without any electricity, toilets, or access to clean water, and just with dirt roads really connecting the different areas. 
And what I saw in Uganda this time suggested that very little has changed. And so I asked myself, what have all those international organizations been doing over the years? I actually asked Sivanya Ari, who founded and runs Innovation Africa, and she said that she had no idea. She asks herself the same questions, and she doesn't have the answers. I think her organization is amazing and inspiring, and it's bringing a message to Africa that Israel cares. The villagers are always told that this is an Israeli organization that uses Israeli technology. And with all the anti-Semitism and anti-Israel feeling around the world today, it's great to know that in lots of villages in Africa, Israel is putting its best foot forward. Manya, what will you be talking about? Sue, that sounds like a really rewarding story and a really rewarding experience in the field. So Sue and Sefi, last week during this segment, I explained how I needed to overcome my reticence to advertising my Judaism and find a way, besides broadcasting it here, to tell the world and really show the world that my family is Jewish, a way that's comfortable for me and my family. Now, on Sunday, Sefi, you met my three-year-old daughter as we marched across the Brooklyn Bridge. She was adorable. Oh, thank you. I think so, too. Uh, We were marching across the bridge to show our Jewish pride and solidarity with those who have been victims of anti-Semitism. Now, while carrying a three-year-old for two miles is not generally advisable unless you have plenty of ibuprofen on hand for the next day, I did love that moment at the peak of the bridge when we could see the thousands in front of us and the thousands behind us. She was in genuine awe when I showed her that she is not at all alone. She is part of a tradition, a community, who believe in repairing the world and taking care of their fellow men and women. Now, as I joked on Twitter, my son is also totally into the concept of Jewish and proud, but not Jewish and crowd, and he declined to come, perhaps wisely, given the turnout. I really don't think he would have been pleased. But having my daughter there, who was energized, intrigued, interested, It was really an incredibly powerful experience, and she and I encouraged each other, I think. I talked last week about how, as a religion reporter, I've often kept my faith to myself, concerned that sources would not trust me to be unbiased. But on Sunday, it really hit home that I have an additional calling to fulfill now. As a wife and a mother living in the New York area, they're assaulting Jews in the streets here. They're killing them in grocery stores and inside their homes. So it's really up to me to teach my children how to embrace their own religious tradition, equip them to explain it to others, and respect and honor others' beliefs as well. I need to teach my children what being Jewish means, both the beauty and the burden. Now, on Monday, the official Jewish and Proud Day, I took a more muted approach. I wore a ring that once belonged to my mother proclaiming L'chaim, and I added a Star of David to the chain on which I wear my father's Masonic ring. In fact, it's, it's still there. You can hear it jingling. But I also did something less public this week. I subscribed, albeit a day or two late, to another podcast to guide me through the next seven-and-a-half-year cycle of Daf Yomi, a daily study of each page of the Talmud. It is something I have wanted to do ever since I learned about it 17 years ago. But at that time, it was way too late in the cycle to begin, and I just kept missing my chance when each seven-and-a-half-year cycle restarted. Every time I remembered, it seemed I was a year or two too late. It's really the story of my life. <laughs> but now, for those who have no clue what I'm talking about, Daf Yomi was developed a century ago by a Hasidic rabbi in Poland as a way to unify the Jewish people around the world by having them study and meditate on the same page of text every day. Now, it's remained a largely male, largely orthodox tradition, but that's been changing to include more women, and I'm going to be one of them. 
Now, there's this wonderful memoir by Ilana Krishan called If All the Seas Were Ink. I got it through my kid's PJ Library subscription one day. And that memoir details how the daily ritual of Dafyomi guided her through the transition of divorce. As I undergo a few significant transitions of my own, including this whole wife and mother and embracing Jewishness thing, I'm going to give this Dafyomi a try. Who knows if I'll stick with it. But that undoubtedly will be what we talk about at our Shabbat table. Wow, that is so beautiful. (laughs) I have a very fond memory of, in 2012, bringing a group of Jewish teens around Eastern Europe and then Israel for the summer. And when we got to Lublin in Poland, we went to Yeshivat Chochmei Lublin, which was Rabbi Meir Shapira's yeshiva, where he devised this idea of Dafyomi and got to teach a little Torah to my kids that summer, which was really a powerful experience that has stuck with me. Here's what I'll be talking about. On Sunday, together with our partners at UJA Federation of New York and a few other major Jewish organizations, like you were saying, Manya, AJC planned a march against anti-Semitism across the Brooklyn Bridge, ending in a rally at Cadman Plaza in Brooklyn. In truth, having had no more than a week to promote the event, we had no idea whether it was going to be the crushing crowds that your son was worried about. But in the end, more than 25,000 people, Jews and our allies, turned out on a frigid Sunday morning to stand together against anti-Semitism. But what happened next was also incredible. They didn't let their energy fade away. We've all been there, right? It can be so easy to say, okay, I marched, I checked that box and move on to the next thing to worry about. Instead, these people all took another action the next day on AJC's Jewish and Proud Day. On Monday, thousands and thousands of Jews in 60 countries around the world did something to make themselves identifiably Jewish in solidarity with those identifiably Jewish Jews who have found themselves on the front lines of anti-Semitism. We asked people participating to let us know on AJC.org why they were proud to be Jewish, and we were inundated with answers. Here are just a few of them. From Julia F. in Suffolk County, New York, I am proud to be the daughter of a refusenik, the wife of the son of a sole Holocaust survivor and an entire massacred family, and the mother of three Jewish children whose very existence is an act of resistance. From Tikvat I in Montgomery County, Maryland, I am proud to be a part of the Jewish people who lived in exile and under persecution for nearly 2,000 years and now, having established the state of Israel, works and sometimes struggle to make real our values in a complicated world. From Mary Kay in Memphis, Tennessee, being Jewish is life-changing. Not only does it mean a sense of community, but it means a sense of belonging. To me, the mitzvah of making the world a better place is at my core and lives in my soul. No matter how hard the world may get and be, I know I must wake up every day to put more love into the world, and I wear this as a badge of honor. We didn't end anti-Semitism this week. We have lots of work ahead. But Tens of thousands of people took action to say that people of good conscience have no tolerance for anti-Semitism, no matter who perpetrates it, no matter who they target. And that's what I'll be talking about at my Shabbat table this week. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. 
We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod.